I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about the Ukrainian southern and eastern counteroffensive that was just launched today, we're talking Thursday, June 8th, we have with us the great, the best guest ever on my show, Dr. Seth Jones, head of the International Security Program at CSIS, Senior VP and Harold Brown Chair. Seth, welcome back. Andrew, it is always a pleasure to talk to the best podcast host I have ever dealt with in my life. <laughs> See, you know, it's always like this back and forth. And then someone says, well, didn't you just say the same thing to Elliot Cohen when he came on? But it's only you and Elliot that I say this to, you know. So, but really, thanks for being here, Seth. I mean, we're we're on the eve of a pretty massive counteroffensive that Ukraine is waging. Um, President Zelensky has stated that Ukraine's ready for this. We're seeing it in the South and the East. What are you seeing? Well, we're seeing a couple of things. First of all, what the Ukrainians really need is speed now. This has been a war of attrition, and that means high casualties for both sides. What the Ukrainians want to do is move to a war of maneuver, of mobility. Napoleon wrote that, quote, the strength of an army like power and mechanics is estimated by multiplying the mass by the velocity, end quote. And what the Ukrainians are looking for right now is velocity, is speed to take back territory as quickly as they can so they don't get bogged down. So Napoleon has kind of outlined really what the Ukrainians need to do now, and they understand that. And the Russians have been preparing defensive structures for quite some time. In fact, it's worth noting that according to CSIS analysis, uh, and this is based on the satellite imagery uh, that we've uh, conducted and the analysis we've conducted based on satellite imagery of the Russian fortifications, that these are the largest and most extensive defensive works we have seen in Europe since World War II. That's amazing. And among the most significant we've seen anywhere in the world in the last couple of decades, probably along the same lines that we've seen along the North Korean, South Korean front. So these are extraordinary. And so what they include are, are items like trenches, minefields, dragon's teeth. Seth, what, what are dragon's teeth? Dragon's teeth, Andrew, are pyramid-like structures that are made of concrete. They're also, the concrete is buried in the ground. They're connected to each other and they're, they're positioned in rows and they make it virtually impossible for tanks or other heavy mechanized units to cross over. They've been used for decades. They were used during World War II. And they're, think of it, they're really trying to funnel Ukrainian mechanized forces like main battle tanks through very specific locations where they can essentially blow them up. So you use them so that you have to force the tanks into certain locations. The reality is we've seen is that there appears to be a lot of variation in the quality of the dragon's teeth and other fortifications. They're not, they don't appear to be all top quality production elements. We've seen contractors producing what look like the environment's already started eroding some of these dragon's teeth. It's not clear that they're all made of concrete, uh, that they're not all dug appropriately in the ground. So this is a really important aspect for the Ukrainians with help from the West to identify the weak points on the lines, including with these trenches and dragon's teeth and other barriers. So are the Ukrainians going to be able to 
you know, get through this to actually, you know, wage this counteroffensive? It sounds really daunting. Well, it's an interesting question, but there are a range of things that I think the Ukrainians are really going to have to go through. I mean, it is important to note that this is not the only time where we've seen an attacker, in this case, the offense, attempt to break through well-defended lines. The Germans were able to do this in a well-defended 300-mile front that we know was called the Maginot Line, and they were able to successfully find a weak point in the Ardennes and punch through French and Belgian lines. We've seen the Israelis do it in numerous wars, uh, punching through what looked like well-defended Egyptian or Syrian lines and using a blitzkrieg strategy to punch through. In those cases, it's really good intelligence on where the weak spots are. You're using technology, tanks, or in this case, also potentially drones and swarms of drones effectively. You're using terrain to your advantage. And you're also using superior skills and and will to fight. I mean, one thing that we saw with the Israelis, for example, in the Six-Day War, is this is a this was a war for survival for the Israelis. So their will to fight was extraordinarily high. For the Ukrainians right now, they have they have been as successful as they have been over the last year because this is survival of the state. So one of the things in cases where we've seen offenders or attackers really take advantage of well-defended lines is, in addition to all those other variables, this very strong morale, political will to fight among troops. And the Ukrainians so far have shown an ability to do that. So these are all indications, I think, that it is definitely possible they're able to punch through Russian lines in a number of areas and retake at least some territory. Now, how much? Hard to know, but I think it's definitely feasible. You know, we're talking about this in terms of World War II, in terms of Six-Day War, some of the, you know, bloodiest battles in history. How bloody is this going to be? Well, Andrew, it's likely to be bloody. Um, you know, it's interesting from the Russian standpoint, the Russians have already lost an incredible number of soldiers. You know, somewhere in terms of fatalities in the 70 to 80 to 90,000 realm, these are more Russian soldiers uh, that they that have been killed and casualties, so wounded, killed, and then others that are lost uh, in action. More soldiers than in all wars combined that the Russians and the Soviets fought since World War II. So think for a moment, more, more soldiers that have died, Russian soldiers that have died in the last year than in Chechnya plus Afghanistan plus Hungary plus every other war the Russians have fought since 1945. This gives you a sense of the toll they've already suffered right now. And because of that, and because of the political difficulties for Vladimir Putin of another mobilization, they have resorted to uh, bringing in private contractors. So Wagner Group, the challenge with private military companies like Wagner is that these aren't generally the best fighters. So, so the toll is likely to be heavy on the Russian side because we've already seen it heavy and their soldiers generally aren't the best trained, especially these contractors. But on the Ukrainian side, as uh, Ukrainian defense officials and President Zelensky have already noted, this is a, they're likely to take some heavy tolls because they're having to try to punch through heavily defended Russian lines with artillery and they're going to lose thousands, if not tens of thousands of soldiers over the next several of weeks. And I think they're prepared to risk the blood costs because this is Ukrainian territory they're fighting for. Seth, do you think this is going to be the bloodiest part of the war so far for the Ukrainians? 
Andrew, I think this is likely to be, if not the bloodiest, one of the bloodiest parts of the war for the Ukrainians. The Ukrainian offensives in Kharkiv and Kherson in 2022 were both bloody. The difference between the offensive now is that the Russians have had much more time to build defensive fortifications, those dragon's teeth, berms, trenches, minefields, and that's likely to take a toll on advancing Ukrainian forces. So this is likely to be, if not the bloodiest, one of the bloodiest parts of the war for Ukraine. And yet Zelensky and the Ukrainian people say that their will is unbreakable. And, and maybe that's the difference, too. They're fighting against contractors who, you know, aren't fighting for anything except for money. They're sellswords. You know, they're not really invested the way the Ukrainians are. Look, the Russian regular and contractors that are fighting in Ukraine are fighting not for seriously Russian territory. They're fighting for Ukrainian territory. Certainly, Vladimir Putin calls this Russian territory, but it, they're fighting for Ukrainian territory. The Ukrainians are fighting for their homeland, and that's what makes this different. They're fighting now to retake territory that in January of 2022 was theirs. They lived on, their families lived on, their sons and daughters. They farmed these fields that they're now fighting in. This historically gives those fighting a much more significant advantage when they're fighting for their own territory. Seth, the Ukrainians this week have also experienced a, a flood that looks by all accounts a biblical type flood. Dam burst. We don't know how. How's that complicating things for Ukraine? Well, the dam destruction does complicate, at least in the short term, some offensive measures for Ukraine. At least it makes areas south of the dam more difficult for river crossings. For any off offense, you need speed. So you have to figure out how to, with a landscape changing actually hour by hour uh, in the flooding, you've got to figure out how to get mechanized forces across now these river crossings with the territory and the landscape changing rapidly. But, you know, over the next couple of days, I think the landscape will start to settle in. And this doesn't really impact any of the forces, Ukrainian forces operating north of the border as well. This also has some impact for Russian forces as well, because some of the territory that's been flooded is Russian territory. And from, from all indications so far, Russian forces uh, below where the dam broke were not informed that there was going to be a dam break they were not informed that the area that they were controlling was going to be flooded. So they've had to respond as well to area that they control. So there's going to need to be some adjustments for both sides. But, you know, breaking dams is not new to this kind of warfare. We've seen numerous instances over the last several centuries of dams uh, being broken during this type of warfare. And armies adapt and air forces adapt and navies adapt to this kind of activity. The armies on both sides, they'll adapt. Seth, you just returned from the region. You were meeting with Poles and Finns and others in the Baltic states. What did you learn while you were there? Well, Andrew, one of the things that every senior government official in the Baltic states, in Finland, in Poland, and in every other European uh, military and, and official we spoke to said categorically that the Russian threat will persist for the foreseeable future. And it will actually likely get worse. The Russians are taking so many casualties right now. And the perspective from Moscow, at least as they see it across the border in Western Europe and Eastern Europe, is that the Russians perceive the casualties to essentially be caused by NATO weapon systems, intelligence, and training. 
So I think what this means is the Russians will attempt to reconstitute their forces over the next several years. They'll be looking to China for help in doing that, and that the Russians will respond eventually with a vengeance to really what are historical casualty numbers. The second issue is we heard from everybody that borders Russia, or is at least close to the Russian border, that they expect in the near future, when this war in Ukraine starts to settle down somewhat, is a, a significant increase in gray zone or asymmetric attacks. So along the Finnish border, for example, think, you know, what does that mean? That means the weaponization of immigrants. We've seen the Belarus already do that to Poland. Finland, which has a 1,400-kilometer border now with Russia, uh, they are now building, the Finns are now building a three-meter-high fence generally designed to prevent the weaponization of, of immigrants that the Russians, uh, they expect the Russians to use to try to push them into Finland to create actually a broader political situation the way it did with Poland. This is it's not just individuals coming across the border. This is causing domestic chaos as individuals from the far right object to immigrants coming in. So um, in addition, serious concerns about potentially the fiber optic networks that are go underneath the water north of Finland uh, that are off the coast in the Atlantic of, of the UK and of France, potentially being targeted by Russian forces, pipelines being targeted. The uh, Poles talked us through a Russian threat to target railheads in Poland earlier this year in 2023. So isn't this an attack on NATO though, if they do stuff like this? Okay. I mean, I mean, it, it depends on how you do it. If this was, let's say a, a, a Russian GRU, it's the main intelligence director attack, uh, but they were able to train locals to do it. So the individuals involved and the ones that were arrested were not actual GRU operatives. Then you're getting into a gray zone. So the Russians will deny that these were Russian operatives, that these were Russian trained. So you get into a case where it suddenly becomes a little difficult to figure out who was involved. The fingerprints of the Russians are carefully hidden. And then certainly offensive cyber attacks. I was going to say, and not to mention ag aggressive disinformation campaigns. So what we heard from every senior official we talked to was that this conflict in Ukraine will certainly broaden over the next several months and years. And think, for example, I mean, if you look at this from a Russian perspective, NATO was just expanded now to Finland and very likely Sweden soon. So anyone who's thinking optimistically that there'll be some off-ramps to end this war, that's not in the cards. No, this, this war will not stop in the foreseeable future. The Russians are not going to forget historical numbers of casualties and fatalities. They are not going to forget. Seth, thanks for underlining this for us and helping us make sense of it. Really appreciate it. Andrew, you're welcome. Always glad to be on. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 